By the way, I would remind you, especially if you may be visiting today or any of our members, if you do not have a little chart like the one I have behind us here, we have several over on the table. I believe that's what those are uh, over here, aren't they, Brother Larry? Uh, The charts on the book of Revelation. It's just a very simple chart that will help you uh, define the different sections of Revelation and help you to put what is said in those different chapters in the proper place and in the proper, give you the proper perspective. So we come today to Revelation chapter 9. I want us to read verse 1 through verse number 12. And if I do have time before the beans burn at your home, I'll try to finish these 12 verses. But if not, I will have pity and mercy and compassion on you and will just save a little bit of it. Aren't you glad you got a preacher like that, huh? All right. Uh, somebody said you hadn't shown much compassion lately. <laughs> Maybe that's true. All right. Revelation chapter what, 9 and verse 1. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven under the earth. And to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Notice the star is not a literal star. The star is referred to as him. And to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit. And there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth and upon them was given power or unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth held power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. And on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions." And they had breastplates, as it were, breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions. And there were stings in their tails. And their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, But in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. One woe is past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. In this section, as we're studying the sounding of the trumpets, 
I would remind you that we are now in these chapters from chapter 6 through 19. The Lord is dealing with and revealing to us events and conditions and circumstances that will occur in the period the Bible designates as the day of Jacob's trouble, the day of the wrath of God, the day of his indignation, or as we have called it here, the period of great tribulation. You'll find that that period, if you'll take a quick glance at the chart, if you in the back can see it, you'll find that the kind of the orange arrow is, reptri- uh, is representative of the moment we call the rapture. That is the catching out of this world of all believers who have come to Christ in this age of the church. Now that event could occur today. There are no prophetic things that must be fulfilled as yet before the Lord should come in the clouds as he writes in 1 Thessalonians 4 at verse 16 and 17 and snatch away, and our word rapture comes from that, and rapture the bride, the believers, up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. After that event, will begin the tribulation period. If you can see from where you are, we have designated a period of some seven years. I'll not take time to go into the explanation of why we call it, uh, why we designate it that length of time. We have already done that at some length, I think, in previous messages. But nonetheless, we are in that period now in Revelation 9 of the tribulation period. Last Sunday, we dealt with chapter 8, where there were the sounding of four trumpets. You remember, and I'll remind you of this, that the judgments of God upon this earth, that he will affect upon this earth in order to establish his reign and his rule upon this earth, beginning at the time when he comes the second time and places his feet on this earth. These things, uh, the judgments that will incur in that period are described uh, under things called seals, uh, trumpets, uh, and vials. Or the word vial simply meaning bowls. So you have seven seals, you have the sounding of seven trumpets, and you have the pouring out of seven bowls that are all representative of the judgment of God upon a godless, unbelieving, Christ-rejecting, Satan-controlled world. And so here we are in that period of the revelation. Now here the passage is introduced to us as the woe trumpets. Look back in chapter 8, the very last verse, the last verse of chapter 8. And John said, I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, notice this is just following the sounding of the fourth trumpet and the things that occurred there. And that loud voice cried, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. Now, the word woe simply is a word, we call it an interjection. It is a word that is interjected. And so the word, this interjection, word woe, simply means an overwhelming sorrow, an overwhelming sorrow. 
grief, that is, heavy affliction or calamity. So when this angel messenger cries, woe, 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 he is announcing a greater overwhelming sorrow than has already been described. A greater grief, a greater affliction, a calamity and disaster that has already occurred is about to come upon this earth. Notice, if you will, that in these moments of judgment God permits on this earth, that they grow increasingly more intense and more severe. But all the tragedy of it all, as you'll see in this chapter, that in spite of all of the judgment of God, men are unwilling to repent of their sin, of their wickedness, and turn to God. In fact, judgment has never turned men to God. Rather, it is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the wooing of the Spirit of God. Men who are determined to resist God only become more hardened and callous under the hand of judgment. And so here, after the seals have been broken, the trumpets are beginning to sound. We have looked at four of those, as we've said. Now the judgments through the final sounding of the three trumpets, these judgments called the woe trumpets begin to intensify. Until at the final sounding of the seventh trumpet, which you'll find recorded in chapter 11 and verse 15. At the sounding of that final or seventh trumpet, there are voices that will be heard and are heard in heaven. And those voices are heard to cry. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our God, of our Lord, and of his Christ. That is, of his anointed one, and he shall reign forever and forever. So you see, we're coming fast toward the end events as you look at these woe trumpets. Now more of the judgment will be described as you look at the bowls of wrath or the vials of the wrath of God. But they coincide and yet at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, there is that voice in heaven, the voice is crying. The kingdoms have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his anointed one. Now list, notice this, those voices are heard in heaven. The kingdoms of this earth, on this earth, have not at that point become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. But remember this, things happen in heaven, or rather, let me say it like this, are announced in heaven often, many times, before they become reality on earth. For example, the Bible tells us that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. It was not that the Lamb of God had already been slain literally. Our Lord Jesus had, died, had not died upon the cross. But in the mind and in the history, in the annals of heaven, it was as good as already done. And thus when the angel voice is sounded, uh, that trumpet is sounded at the seventh time. The heavenly host realize that just as God has promised, so will it be. And they are rejoicing in the present tense. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Not only that, but I could give an illustration. The very temple, the tabernacle of the wilderness, as well as the temple for Israel. It was but a pattern of that which was in the heaven. 
The heavenly pattern was there. The, hef- the temple was there. Long before Solomon ever erected a temple, long before Moses ever erected a tabernacle, long before Herod ever built his temple, the whole story is be- announced before reality later. All right, are you following me in that? Are you? Not yet like that. Do like this. I, I some of you not nodding. One fellow nodded five minutes ago in just one way. That's it. That hasn't come up. All right. Let me ask you to follow carefully. Are you going to miss what I'm trying to say and try to explain to you? Follow carefully now. Let's consider this fifth trumpet. That's all the time we'll have. So let's look at it. Verse 1 through 12, as we've read, gives the description of that that is going to follow as the, uh, as the fifth of these seven trumpets is sounding. I'll remind you that the language in this passage is highly symbolic. And you'll find that. It is highly symbolic. As it were, as it were. Notice that phrase, as it were, as it were. That is a, a note denoting symbolism. Now, the account tells us, as we've read it together, of a fearful demon host which is to be unleashed And by divine permission, by the way, this demon host will be unleashed upon this earth as this trumpet is indeed sounded. The demons, I think, will indeed prepare the minds and the wills of people, bringing them into strong delusion that they will indeed exalt this one who claims to be God. And you and I know as Bible students as the Antichrist. The ruler, that one who rises as a world figure and a world ruler. I beloved, I think you know as well as I that the world is already being prepared for what is to come. As far as demon activity, as far as what is described here, our present world, this very generation, this world in which you and I are now living constantly is under preparation. Every year, every year that passes by, there are numerous hundreds of new books that come out dealing with subjects like demons, witchcraft, the occult, black magic, spiritism, ghosts, and so forth. Television does has its own input. How many programs have you seen in the last, say, month? that indeed features things like fortune tellers, soothsayers, and uh, uh, seances, fortune tellers, and all the like. In other words, it is a mental preparation going on right now for the spirit of Antichrist does already work. The mystery of iniquity is already working. And the minds of people are being conditioned by such things as I've just mentioned. And these indeed will readily respond to what occurs as is described here. The groundwork then is being laid for an enormous invasion and unleashing an increase of demon activity upon this very earth. And yet again, men and women laugh at the fact of demons they have in the past. But I think more and more we're realizing that there is reality in what the Bible says about it. What will happen under the blowing of this fifth trumpet as we see it here will be made easier then because of the preconditioning of the minds of men and women to the point that they reject biblical truth and are willing to accept and believe a lie. 
the New Age movement, for example, a very powerful movement, if you're not aware of it, in our country and in our world today. Shirley MacLaine is one of the leading advocates of the New Age movement. And many people uh, know her name by reason of, of television and movies and so forth. Uh, that it is a doctrine of the new age that they say is coming, not as the Bible predicts, but because of man and his, uh, and his being actually and becoming a God. Uh, new ageism teaches uh, reincarnation. Uh, it teaches the fact of reliance on spirit beings as guides, spirit mediums. And, and these people, uh, McLean and many others that I could mention, uh, they talk about having a, a, a medium between them and the cosmos. That is, they, they have opened themselves to demonic intrusion and these demon spirits even today are directing men and women. You'd be surprised to learn of those in high positions of leadership in our country and in our world who are following the philosophy of the New Age movement and of its doctrine. Now these uncanny spirits are creatures that John reveals to us here. They're released at the sounding of the fifth trumpet. And indeed they are without mistake evil spirits. They are demon powers. They are demon beings. The description that is given here of their appearance on the scene is also a revelation of their character. In other words, what John tells us about the appearance of these and is a grotesque, a ghastly kind of appearance, but in that very presentation, he unveils something of their character. Now, if I have time, and I've only got about 13 minutes, I want to give you 13 things that John shows you here that describe and has told us about these demon hordes that will indeed be unleashed. Verse 1 and 2, look at your Bible glancing at it quickly. Verse 1 and 2 reveals that they are incarcerated. They are incarcerated. Now notice beginning at verse 1 that John says, And I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. I must explain this to you. For I think the statement in itself is perhaps misleading if you don't understand this. The word fall here is in what is known in the Greek language of the New Testament in the perfect tense. Thus it is literally rendered fallen. Not that he saw the star fall, and this is a personage, but it is the sense that that star has already fallen. Remember in Luke 10, verse 18, Jesus said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. In other words, the devil has already had his fall. And what John is saying here in this original language is, I saw a star which had already fallen from heaven. So the star is not a literal star. It is a personage, as the remainder of the verse says, and to him, to this fallen being, to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Now the scripture reveals that the wicked spirits that have been in chains of darkness, they have been imprisoned, if you please. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 or 2 Peter 2 and verse 4 that they are reserved in chains of darkness. 
In other words, there are those beings that have fallen, that are indeed chained. They are restricted in their action, their movement, until the time that Almighty God determines that they should be released. This prison house, if we want to call it that, the demons know of that full well. Remember back in Luke's account of the man who was possessed of demons and the Lord Jesus cast them out of the demons, uh, cast the demons out of the man into a herd of swine. You remember the plea of those demons? They said in chapter 8 of Luke verse 31, they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. Now, if you're looking at that verse, the word deep is the simple word abyss. And actually, you'll find that that word abyss is kind of a transliteration. It's a carryover from the old language to our language. Actually, it refers, as our, our, our verses do here, the bottomless pit, the abyss, the pit. And so it is from this place, watch this, that these satanic, demonic creatures are released and they come upon this very earth. I want to tell you something. If God Almighty had not restrained the forces of evil and the personalities of fallen beings, this world would right now be a hell on earth. It will become that. A hell on earth. You think we have trouble now. Men are inspired to murder and they're compelled to thievery and crime and rape and molestation and abuse. I want to tell you, if all these who have been chained and reserved in the chains of darkness until their appointed time were released, you would live in a literal hell on this earth. And so then these are in the abyss. Picture what, if you will, uh, picture what this world would be, for example, if all of the penitentiary doors of our nation and the world were open. Every murderer, every rapist, every violent, crooked, wicked, abominable, perverted human being who is now locked up behind bars and, and wires of the penitentiary. Can you imagine what our society would be if just the prisoners of the state of Georgia were released? And yet, my friend, there is coming a day, you believe me, Hear what God is saying to us. There's coming today when that prison house of the abyss where these are chained and reserved until their appointed time will be released on this very earth. What a horrible, horrible thought. In other words, something worse lies in store for this old world of ours than that that would be, that would be if all of the prisoners of all the penitentiaries were released and, uh, and let loose on society. So these are incarcerated beings at present. But they will be released, notice. A key was given and that door, that bottomless pit was opened and these were released. Secondly, notice verse 3 that these beings are infernal. Not only incarcerated, but they are infernal beings. The word infernal simply meaning belonging to hell, diabolical, fiendish, hellish, satanic. Notice what the verse says at verse three. And there came out of the smoke locust upon the earth and unto them was given power. And when you begin to look here in these verses, if you look carefully at the description given to us, they appear to be as some kind of a form of satanic cherubim. 
They are some sort of unusual created being, fallen indeed as they are, but what a monstrous thing they appear to be. They are described in the terms of the horse, the man, the locusts, the lion, the scorpion, and yet all are combined, as you'll notice in John's description of these very evil beings, these demonic personalities. Now, undoubtedly, the locusts that are mentioned here are not ordinary locusts. I think anybody could discern that. They're not ordinary locusts. They are supernatural and incapable of being killed. Somebody in writing about it suggested mutant locusts. You're about, what is this, mutant ninja turtles or something. I've never seen the like in my life. I even hate to go in a hamburger joint. Afraid they'll feed me one of them things. But here is a mutant, as it were, a strange being, and yet again let loose upon this earth. They are not ordinary locusts. There is no doubt about that. For they are infernal in their nature, satanic, devilish, hellish, fiendish. And then notice, if you will, verse number four, they are insatiable. That is, they are unsatisfied. They are not to be satisfied in their hunger. They are not to be appeased. They are full of greed. They are full of desire. The ordinary locust, by the way, descends on earth in, in, in uh, dense clouds to devour everything before it that is green. Notice that. That's an ordinary locust. He comes in, if a swarm of locusts come, they eat the leaves, the stems, the grass, whatever they can, everything in sight. By the way, the very worst locust plague in our century occurred in 1951 and 1952 in Iran, in Iraq, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia. The, 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 the destruction and devastation of what little greener had was literally overwhelming. They said that plague of locusts literally covered thousands of square miles in those different countries of the world. And so they came devouring everything in their, in, in their path. These demon locusts are, uh, these uh, demons are, are, are so uh, lo- locust-like uh, in their appetites that John is saying they destroy everything in their pathway and they would destroy everything were they not divinely restrained by God. But notice there is a restraint. Look at the verse. And he says, only those who have not the seal of God in their foreheads. He said, now you can destroy anything else, touch everything else, but do not touch those who have the seal of God in their foreheads. Now we have read earlier about 144,000 Jews who will be sealed with the seal of God. But we also believe that undoubtedly that includes perhaps in this statement that we just read in, in, in Revelation 9. Undoubtedly it must refer to all who are followers of the Lord. But especially we can be safe to know that these who are sealed, the 144,000 are not to be touched by, by these demon powers, these demon locusts are hungry for men, for unregenerate, godless, Christ-hating, Christ-rejecting men. They're unleashed by the permission of God, and thus they're insatiable in their appetite. Look at verse 5 and 6. I must quickly bring to close. They are intolerable. They are intolerable. Notice five months they're given now. Five months, and the ordinary locusts, 
period, lifespan, is from May to September. You got five months. That's the natural life of a natural locust. And yet I think of something else that strikes me. The Lord says that he has given them power for five months. You see, they are limited by a sovereign God. God is still in control. He is controlling even the acts of judgment by his permissive sovereign will. And now you're saying in mercy, watch this, only five months. The number five in what is known as scriptural numerology, the study of numbers in the Bible. The number three is indicative of the Trinity. Number seven is number of completion. Number four, or number 40, is the number of trial of temptation. 40 days, 40 nights. But the number five, significantly enough, is the number of grace. And even in the midst of this judgment, God is seemingly saying, I am a gracious, merciful God, and I want you to repent. I have no desire that you perish. I want to be your Savior. I want you to come to me. But oh, tragically so, men, in spite of the judgment of God, turn in a hardened heart and refuse to come to him. Not only that, but look at verse, uh, as you look at verse 5 and 6, these, the stings of these demon locusts, the verses reveal they produce such anguish of body, of mind, and of spirit that men literally want to die, but they cannot die. Are you talking about a hell on earth? That's it. In other words, their sting doesn't kill. And an ordinary locust, uh, an ordinary scorpion does not kill very often. It's not fatal. But it's one of the most terrifying, hurting, painful, anguishing kinds of bites that anybody or stings that anybody could ever, ever experience. I'm told I've never been stung by one. Their sting is not fatal, but rather than that, they are so in misery and pain, mind and soul and body, that men literally cry and beg to die. But by the Bible is saying, there is a day when death will take a holiday and men will not be able to die. I want to tell you something, my friend. When you put side by side the love of God and the wrath of God, all oh, the wise man every time will choose the love of God. What a fearful thing it is for men to fall in the hands of a living God. And I must remind you as much as I detest to remind you that though God is a God of love and he wants to save and rescue, I must in faithfulness remind you that he is a God of wrath. He is a God of judgment simply because he is a holy God without taint or tendency or thought of sin because he is holy. He must either pardon men of their sin when they come to him by reason of the shed blood of his son or he must, if men refuse, punish them in their sin. He would not be God if he did not do so. And so here comes the tragedy of judgment upon this earth. Men desiring to die. Can you imagine death sometimes today is a release? I've heard people beg to die. Anguish, suffering in their body. They want to die. I've heard of men on battlefields who have been wounded by enemy fire and heard that they had cried to their fellow soldiers and buddies, somebody shoot me. Somebody kill me. Take me out of this misery. 
And yet for some way, God says that in that day, though misery upon misery and pain upon pain, there is no release. I think it is a foreshadowing of hell itself where men who die without Christ forever and ever and ever and ever and ever languish in the judgment of the fiery wrath of hell. Not only that, but look at verse 7a, the first part of the verse, and you'll find that these creatures are intrepid. And I mean by the word intrepid, simply they're unshakable. They're dauntless. They're brave. Notice that these are symbolized by the appearance of the horse. And the horse in Scripture is a war horse. It is a symbol of defiance, a symbol of war. These terrible creatures that John describes for us right here that have come up from out of the pit are high, we could call them high metal steeds who now straining at the leash pawing at the ground, are anxious to get on with their mission of doom and destruction. They are intrepid. Not only that, but look at the latter part of verse 7. You'll find they are invincible. They're invincible. The scripture says on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold. A suggestion that these conquer all that's in their path. No weapon, no weapon against them can succeed. No medicine, no psychiatry, no military power, no invention of science. These creatures are invincible. Medical, the medical and the scientific world will be literally baffled as to what to do about this invasion that is occurring on this very planet Earth. Everything will fail. They're crowned with gold. A crown of success. Look at the latter part of verse verse 7c, I've called it. Notice they're intelligent. They have the faces as the face of men. The face is a reflection of what man is. And here it is simply mentioning the fact of the intelligence of these creatures. Unlike some virus. Unlike some germ, these are creatures of doom and death and destruction who have intelligence in themselves. Notice this. Remember, maybe in history, back in 1666, when the bubonic plague spread over so much of the world, if somehow we could be transported back to that period and try to tell the people what the trouble is, you know what they'd do they would probably laugh you to scorn. They believed that it was in the air. There was some kind of fresh air. And therefore, a lot of times they'd light fires in the rooms and fill the room with smoke. They felt that just breathing this fresh air was the source of their getting this deadly bubonic plague. And then they discovered that it was not in the air. It was a virus, a germ. And yet if you go back and try to tell them about that, they'd laugh you to scorn. And yet you try to tell men and women today in this age what's going to happen when demon powers are unleashed on this earth. They'd probably laugh us to scorn. Why, they say how foolish that is. And yet again, our Lord declares that they will come and yet these are not some unintelligent virus. They're intelligent beings set on the doom and devastation of man. Look at verse 8, the first part of the verse. Are you still with me? They had hair as the hair of women. I think it simply is meaning that 
They're designed to entrap. I'd say that they are insidious. And that's what the word insidious means, designed to entrap. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 6 and 7, that a woman's hair is her glory. There's something attractive about a woman's hair. And yet I think I see in what John is saying right here that the long hair that he describes on these locust demon creatures suggests that there is something horribly attractive and yet seductive in these creatures who come. Perhaps men will be attracted to them even today as they are the occult. Even today as they are spirit mediums, even as they are the black magic and the Satan worship and all of this, men somehow have a fantasy with that, but the end is destruction. I had a very dear preacher friend whose name, if I recall, I'm sure Brother Larry would know him. One of the finest men of God I've ever met. I helped ordain him, pastors a great church in North Carolina. But his son begun to dabble in black magic and the occult, was intrigued by it. And it seemed to be such a harmless thing. Ouija boards, tarot cards, fortune telling, read more and more into the mystery of the occult. Before long, the son began to act very strangely. He would set fire to his father's mother's home, his home. He had board a freight train, and oftentimes his father would have to drive from the coast of North Carolina to Gainesville, Georgia to pick him up. He was involved in numerous acts of violence. Heretofore he had not been, but before this young man took his own life, he wrote a letter to his father and bemoaned and wailed the fact that he had ever followed the intrigue of his mind into the realm of the occult and black magic. I want to tell you, my friend, when you begin to fool around with demons and the spirits of the underworld, you're headed for trouble. And it has an attraction. And that's what these are. There's some kind of attraction, yet as a seductive attraction. And they're pulled in, men are pulled in to these. Maybe, maybe, I don't know how they'll do it. Maybe somehow they do it by means of wiles and by magic arts and the like. But the end result is destruction. Notice verse 8 again. They're inexorable. I mean by that, they have the teeth as the teeth of lions. Their teeth. What an awful, ugly sight this is. And yet John is describing it the best way he knows how. He's saying the teeth is the teeth of a lion. The teeth of a lion brings indeed a terrible wound and gash to a man's body. And yet if his bite doesn't kill him, the poisonous infection that is on his teeth creates such a severe, uh, severe infection and wound that the wound rarely, they tell me, com- hardly completely heals. In other words, We've heard no one can rob a lion of its prey. Once its teeth has sunk into its victim, there's no pulling that away. So none who will, none on this earth will be able to rob these demon creatures from those whom they seek their teeth into. Verse 9a, look at verse 9a. They're insensitive. The Bible said they have breastplates as it were breastplates of iron. And I believe it speaks of their insensitivity to the suffering that they cause. The cries of agony have little way of moving them. It matters not. They feast on human pain and human misery. They are insensitive. The more the victim cries and wails, the more delighted the evil demonic spirit is. 
And then notice verse 9b. They are inescapable. They come like a swarm upon a defenseless city to overrun it. They have wings that fly like great massive force. And then not only that, but verse 10, they're injurious. Twice that is mentioned. And when the Holy Spirit mentions something twice, listen, you can mark it down. It's mighty important. And I think he's simply emphasizing that these loathsome spirits have but one single aim and that to injure men. To injure men. Their whole mission is wrapped up in that. For long years, men of this day have spurned the wooings of the Holy Spirit to come to Christ. They have turned from him. And I talked to some in this audience this morning and you have turned from that wooing of his voice time and again. One of these days, my friend, there will be a different voice that men will bow to, but instead of compassion and tenderness and care and love, it'll be just the opposite. But they are, as verse 11 says, and I'll close with this, they're indivisible. They're indivisible. They have a king over them. The normal locust doesn't have a king. Why, Solomon, the great naturalist said in Proverbs 30, verse 27, they have no king. But these are not normal locusts. They're supernatural in their, in, in their very being. And yet they have a king over them. The king is, uh, is named for us. And both in the Hebrew and the Greek language, the name Abaddon and Apollyon simply means destroyer. And so this one who is their king sets them on the course to destroy men. The king and his army of demon destruction. But I want to tell you, I can offer to you and I do offer to you one whose purpose is not destruction, but whose purpose is salvation. Luke records in Luke 19 and verse 10 and says, for the son of man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's his desire. John 10 and verse 10, the scripture again says, and I've come, Jesus said, that you might not have life, but that you might have it more abundantly, life overflowing, free, joyous, peaceful, uh, prosperous. That's what I've come for, he said. I read finally in John 3 and verse 17. And the scripture said, for the son of man has not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Let me tell you something, folks. You're either headed for that wonderful day of full redemption. Are you headed for that awful day of destruction and ruin and judgment? There is no neutral ground. You're not a middle of the roader whether you'd like to be or not. Jesus said you're either for me or against me. You're either going to heaven or hell. If you were to die today, you're going to one or the other. And today God offers to you in Christ mercy. He offers to you forgiveness. He offers you salvation. He offers you redemption. But thank God, those who do come to him and know his salvation, I'm glad to tell you, we're not going to be here when this takes place. Thank God there is the promise that we're not appointed under wrath, but to obtain salvation. And the Lord has promised that he'd come and gather those who believed on him out of this world when, before that dreaded day falls. It's like the times of Noah. Noah and his family entered the ark and they were safe. Those outside knew the judgment. Like in the days of Lot, when Lot was moved out of the city, judgment fell, not before he left, but after he left. And when Lot saw that judgment fall, he realized how merciful God had been, 
And I want to tell you by the same token, if you've been saved today, you can rejoice in the fact that you're going up to be the Lord. But all oh, the horror that some member of your family, some wife, some husband, some friend, somebody you work with is going to be left to endure this awful judgment upon this earth plus eternal lake of fire forever and ever. That's the Bible. If you have an argument, the argument is not with me. But I trust today you'll not argue, but that rather in your heart you'll realize the truth of God's love for you. Had he not loved you, he wouldn't have warned you of such an awful time. He'd let you go on and experience without any warning. But he loves you and died to save you. Today you can be saved by opening your heart, inviting Jesus Christ to come in. You know him as your Savior. You can walk out of here free, a child of God. Let's pray together, please. There's so much involved in these truths and so much I'd like to delve into and time just doesn't permit us. But I believe I've said enough today to help you realize, if nothing else, two facts. You have a choice between judgment and salvation. You have a choice between heaven and hell today. If you die without Christ and go to hell, it'll be your choice, not his. He died to save you and asked to come into your heart right now. And I'm going to give you an opportunity as we stand in just a second to make that outward stand for Jesus Christ and to come saying with all my heart, I trust him, I believe on him, the best I know how I receive him in my heart. And then if you're here and you're a child of God, you need to come in the fellowship of our church. Maybe you need to come, moving your church membership from another church where you've not been going and not faithful. You want God, you know God wants you here. I'm gonna give you that opportunity. Pray that you'll come. Let's stand together as we pray and as we sing in a moment, just as I am without a plea. Heavenly Father, our folks have listened patiently, prayerfully, attentively. And I pray that some of the truth is lodged in the heart. Thank you, Father, that you are a God of mercy and love. And thank you that in your mercy and love, you've told us about these awful things that are to come upon this earth and that you in your love and mercy offer us redemption through Jesus Christ. I pray that men today will come to him, know him as their savior. Oh, the folly of the pleasure of sin. Oh, the folly of the pursuit of pride. Oh, the folly of self-indulgence. When, Lord, what judgment lies ahead? May men today come to trust you. May folks today who need to come to the fellowship of the church do it now. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know the song by heart. Let's sing it together. Oh, let me urge you to come now. Come now. Make that settlement with God, lest tomorrow be far too late. Let's sing it and you come, will you? Let me have prayer with you and help you from the scripture to know how to be saved. Come on while we sing it. done with Christ? What are you done with it? What are you going to do with it? What's he going to do with you? Come on. Come on. God. Stands and sing it. Come just as I am. Are you praying for someone you know? Who doesn't know Christ? 
Someone who's not living for the Lord. Come on. Come on. Dark blood to thee, whose blood can cleanse thee bow your head with me as we sing the last stanza. Come while we sing it prayerfully. You know what needs to be done. Come while you sing it with us. Come on. How will receive? How about it? You have a choice today, but after his coming, no choice. Come on now. Come on now. so much. Look this way just a second. Tonight at 6.30, I want to share with you a message that I think will be an interesting message to you. I want to talk to you about the man who lost his farm and how he lost it. And I'm sure as you think all afternoon, you're not going to come up with who I'm going to talk about tonight. I may be talking about you. I may be describing you. So I hope you'll come tonight because if I'm going to talk about you, you need to be here to hear it. Not secondhand, but here at first hand, lest you lose your farm. Like this man lost his farm. Be sure you're here tonight at 6.30, will you?